Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 2. The chapter division is probably unhelpful here. Most commentators put verse 1 of chapter 2 back with all the content of chapter 1. Let me read that to you. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. And that is probably best understood as the conclusion to the hope oracle at the end of the first chapter. You recall that chapter one was dominated by some extraordinarily difficult and ominous imagery. The young prophet Hosea was commanded to marry a wife of whoredom and to have children of whoredom by her. The prophet's family was to become a visible public sign of God's judgment upon the sins of the nation. He was saying to Israel, as Gomer is to Hosea, so you have been to me. You are the wife of whoredom. And the children, too, would have a role to play in this tragic depiction. The first son was given the name Jezreel, which would be like calling your child Pearl Harbor or Vladimir Lenin. The name appeared to prophesy an imminent and violent end to the ruling dynasty in Israel. The second child, a girl, was to be called Lo Ruhama, or No Mercy, which seemed to be saying that God would not have mercy on them any longer. He would not spare them from the coming national disaster. He would have mercy on Judah in the south, but Israel in the north would now be on its own. The third child, a son, was called Lo-Ami, or not my people. This name appeared to prophesy a catastrophic breakdown of the covenant relationship between God and his people. So chapter one was a remarkably heavy chapter. And yet at the end, there was an apparent break in the clouds. Chapter 1 ends on a note of hope. There is a promise of massive expansion and future reunification and some kind of dramatic covenant renewal. Derek Kidner says here, Grace has a way of interrupting oracles of doom. (laughs) Thanks be to God. So it does seem that the first verse of chapter 2 really ought to be understood as the last verse of chapter 1. Listen to it again. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. That is reversal language. David Allen Hubbard explains the significance of this changing of the names, saying, the changing of the children's names from negative to positive becomes a prophecy of the inclusion of Gentiles into the church, closed quote. That is the ultimate expression of hope. Yes, Israel is heading into a time of national catastrophe and severe chastisement. And yes, it will be a time of significant purging and purification. But It is not the end of God's covenant commitment to his people. There is a future, there is a promise, and there is hope. That is the word of grace that interrupts the oracles of doom in Hosea chapter 1. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 2 of Hosea chapter 2. 
Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So here, God is now using this metaphor that we've established of the marriage relationship between Hosea and Gomer to press his case against the nation of Israel. Go tell your mother to put away her whoring from her face. Tell Israel to stop committing idolatry. Tell Israel to stop pursuing the gods of the nations. That's the call of this text, and it is given to the prophet and also to the people. The people should go tell their mother, that's Israel, that if she doesn't knock it off and get herself straightened out, then God our Father will visit our home in wrath and judgment. Sometimes people have a responsibility to speak truth to power, and they are being told to do that in this passage. Go tell your mother to stop playing the whore, verse 3 lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Now, it's worth noticing here that it doesn't sound at this point as if the judgment upon Israel is a sure and guaranteed thing. It's worth remembering what Derek Kidner said, and we read it in the last chapter. Oracles like these are shouts of warning not irrevocable sentences. Hosea's goal was to shake and shock Israel into repentance and reformation. That's the reason for the urgent language and the jarring metaphors. He wants to avert this disaster. So he's going after their minds, their thoughts, and their emotions. And he is warning them that time is running out and the patience of the Lord will not endure forever. Verse 4, upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. It is interesting to note that if the nation doesn't repent, then judgment will fall on the people as a whole. That's what's being said here. That's why we have the shift to her children. In verse 2, the people were told to go tell your mother, the government, the leadership, the priesthood, the royal house, to stop their wretched whoring. But here God says that if the nation continues on this path, then judgment will fall also on the children, that is, on the people. Why? Because people are ultimately responsible for their leaders. People get the leaders they deserve. Of course, that is even more true in a democracy, but it has always been true in a general sense and to a certain extent. Had the people raised a ruckus in Israel, then the royal house and the priesthood would have had to reform. But they didn't, so they didn't. The nation was corrupt from top to bottom. That's what we're being told. Now, as to the specifics of Israel's whoredom, we receive several helpful clues in verse 5. Here, God says that she, Israel, has believed that her sustenance and prosperity has come from pagan gods. Basically, the text is saying, you went to Baal seeking rain and plentiful crops and abundant harvest. When your wives were barren, you prayed to Asherah instead of me the God of Abraham and Sarah, you have gone to other gods 
who are not gods, instead of coming to me. Verse 6, Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. These are some of my favorite lines in the entire book, some of my favorite lines actually in the entire Old Testament. God says here that he will frustrate all Israel's plans and resist her in all her wicked designs in order to turn her around, repair her affections, and bring her home. Again, this is a good time to remember how the book of Hosea functions. We said this in the last episode, quoting Michael Barrett. Hosea's unselfish love for Gomer symbolizes generally God's gracious love for his people. It typifies specifically Christ's self-sacrificing love for his church, closed quote. So God is saying, as I am commanding you to hedge and restrain and pursue Gomer, so I shall hedge and restrain and pursue Israel. And so Christ shall hedge and restrain and pursue his church. Hear that. There is something to learn here about how the Lord deals with his people. Parents, this is so incredibly useful for you to see. If you are praying for a wayward young adult child who has left her first love in pursuit of lesser things, this is a passage you can use in your secret prayer. Pray this over your young adult. Oh God, hedge up her way with thorns. Build a wall against her in every empty and godless pursuit. Let her not find her path if it would lead her further away from you. Let wrong dreams and faithless ambitions escape her. Let her be unsatisfied and unfulfilled in every life pursuit that does not correspond to your good and perfect will. Cause her to say, Lord, I will go and return to my first love. I will return to Christ for it was better for me then than now. Pray that over your wayward child, because this is who God is, and this is how God works. Matthew Henry says here, we have reason to bless God both for restraining grace and for restraining providences, closed quote. In our own lives, as also in the lives of our children, we say here, thanks be to God. Verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Let's just pause there and notice that ingratitude is the ultimate root of idolatry. So let's be careful to count our blessings. Verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now, remember that these people had just come through an extended season of peace and prosperity. And we know that such things are often the enemy of true faith. Peace and prosperity make us forget, brothers and sisters. They make us self-sufficient. We begin to think ourselves the authors of our own well-being. And the solution to that, from a, 
from the perspective of providence is often poverty, disruption, and chaos. And that is exactly what the Lord here prescribes. Verse 10, now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Daniel Carroll says here, This passage makes abundantly clear the connection between the nation's sin and religious beliefs and practices. I think that is exactly right and helpful for us to see. The root problem here is Israel's syncretistic approach to religion. The list in verse 11 begins with typically Jewish feasts, Sabbaths, etc., but then it goes on to catalog a variety of pagan feasts and practices. Basically, northern Israel had become a religious conglomerate, joining faithful practices with blatant pagan idolatries. Basically, they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They they wanted to be married and sleep around, you might say. They wanted to have God and, and maintain a connection there, but also build a connection with all the petty deities of their Canaanite neighbors. But God is not having that. Look at verse 14. We see here a very unexpected theme introduced all of a the sudden. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. So once again here, we see this surprising, miraculous, marvelous pattern of oracles of doom being followed, interrupted by oracles of hope and blessing. Here, God seems to be speaking of the exile as a type of second honeymoon. The desert, of course, can be a reference back to the original desert wandering after the exodus, or it can refer to a time of punishment as per Ezekiel 29.5. And here it seems to be both. But God is putting a very unexpected spin on it. This exile, this punishment, this desert wandering will actually be the occasion of a fresh covenant renewal between God and his people. And this reminds us of the true character and nature of divine wrath. God is not seeking to destroy his people here. On the contrary, He longs for his bride to be reunited with him in love and covenant faithfulness. So in essence, he pledges to begin again, like the potter who breaks down the clay, but not to throw it out, but rather to start again. That's what this is, and you can hear it in the language. Everything will be transformed, even the valley of Achor, which was originally a place of punishment for rebellion in the days of Achan. Do you remember that? When the ground opened itself, opened itself like a mouth and swallowed Achan and his family. That's the most horrific picture of judgment in the Old Testament. 
But here we're being told that that place, even that symbol will be transformed into a door of hope. It was once a doorway to hell. I'll turn it into a doorway to heaven. We're going to reverse the curse, God says in very poetic language. I am going to crush, grind, chastise, woo, teach, wait, work, change, save, and transform the sin right out of you. And when this is over, you're going to know who I am, and you will love me. You will not think of me anymore through the lens of your corrupted worship and theology. You will know me and see me as I am, and our relationship will be unique and intimate and dear. That's what God is saying here. Verse 18. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So, this is covenant renewal. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you on that day, and you shall know the Lord. Carol says here, Jeremiah, who draws some of his theological roots from Hosea, will develop this idea much further in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Closed quote. Of course, you remember that passage. And you can hear its antecedents in this passage. So remember, Hosea wrote long before Jeremiah. And we assume that Hosea and his writings made their way into the southern kingdom and were collected, particularly after all these things that Hosea had prophesied would happen to the north, after they did happen to the north. They became very valuable resources in terms of warning the South. And so we can see an influence on Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah's passage is by far the better known. Listen to this. He says, this is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You can hear that language. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Closed quote. So that's basically just an expansion of what we're seeing here in Hosea. God says that after the purge, and purification of this coming national disaster after the trauma of Assyria, and then following Jeremiah, we might add, and after the trauma of Babylon, which is basically the second wave of this purge, after the effective dissolution of the political entities known as Israel and Judah, after that breakdown, 
there will be a buildup. There will be a covenant renewal. And this new covenant will be more inwardly focused. It will be a matter of the heart, a covenant of the heart, and it will come with better and nearer graces, and it will result in a nearer and dearer intimacy such that everyone included in it will know the Lord. And it will be founded upon the forgiveness of sin. It will be a new start with a new heart and a new spirit. Praise the Lord. And this work that will be done in us will, in some sense, be for the world. You can see that in verse 21. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so here we come full circle back to chapter 2, verse 1. The names of the children will be reversed. The time of expansion and renewal and reunification will have come. The Apostle Peter provides inspired commentary on this passage. He says to a mostly Gentile church in northern Asia Minor, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2.10. So, this is a tremendously far-reaching vision. It sees into the dark and into the desert. And beyond that, marvelous light. God has a plan, brothers and sisters. It is a long plan and a hard plan. But it is ultimately and finally a Jesus plan. It is a plan to heal us, restore us, renew us, and enlarge us. And it is a plan to bring us home. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 